Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. All right, my chickens. Today, we are talking to three of my incredible graduates of the Advanced Certification of Feminist Coaching. And we are talking about an issue that I think a lot of you will relate to. And even if you don't relate to, it will be applied to some other relationship in your life. So we're talking a lot about kind of mothers and children and the thought work that goes around difficult mother relationships. And we're going to be mostly talking about mothers on this episode, but this applies to any parental relationship in your life. Or even I think people develop quasi-parental relationships with mentors, with teachers, with other family members, even older siblings. Like you kind of have had anybody who was in a sort of nurturing, caretaking role with you and you have a fraught relationship, this is going to apply to you. And if you have just like magically, perfectly delightful relationships with everyone who ever took care of you, then number one, you're probably not a human. And number two, if you are, then just listen so you can enjoy just thinking about how you don't have this particular thought work challenge. So I'm here with my students, Shade, Candace, and Karen, and I'm going to have each of them kind of introduce themselves, tell us, you know, who they coach, and then we're going to start digging into this conversation. All right. So I'll go first. I'm Shade Curry. I am a life coach for divorced women who want to meet a new partner after their divorce and came from my own story, basically. And so that's that's what I do. Thanks. What about you, Candace? I'm Candace Toon, and I help women stop wondering if they've married the wrong guy so that they can spend their brain energy on creating a life they'd want to live. I like that we line that up. Like you go to Shade so you can get remarried. And then if <laughs> your brain hasn't fully resolved, then you hire Candace so you can stop stressing out about that. Exactly. And what about you, Karen? Yeah. So I coach women who want to take better care of themselves in the relationship they have with their mothers and or explore estrangement and like look at boundaries that you might need to have or want to have if you are trying to avoid estrangement. Okay. All right. So I think I'd just like to start. I'd love to hear from each of you kind of how you came to this topic. And I feel like I have to say, because my mother listens to my podcast, this podcast topic was proposed to me. I did not say let's do a podcast (laughs) about mothers. My mother often asks me if when I give an example of a mom on the podcast, if it's her, and I'm like, well, I mean, if you did the thing I'm talking about, then yes. Otherwise, no, I made it up. So I just feel like I need a disclaimer that this was a pitched podcast topic to me. But tell us, I'd love to hear from each of you kind of like, Karen obviously coaches on it, but for the rest of you sort of like how this has shown up in your life or how you ended up coming to this work. Okay, well, I'll I'll start with sort of my lifelong search for what I thought a mom would, you know, be like in my life. So my parents divorced when I was very young and there were periods of being away from my mother. And so obviously there was like whatever that psychic <laughs> longing was. And when I was with my mother, you know, there was those, there were those experiences, but as, as I got older, there was just always this desire for a mentor the desire for a female figure, like it didn't matter what area of my life it was, there was just always this desire for a female figure. And then going through the feminist certification, I began to see 
where a lot of my own patriarchal programming had come from. And a lot of it had come from my mother figures, my mother, my aunts, and all of these places that sent these messages to me as a young child, as a teenager, as a young woman. And so as we untangled all of that, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is where I got this from. So I'll give a quick example is my older sister was unmarried at 29. Finally got married at 50. I say finally because that is the language of like, oh my God, we're all just so relieved right now, you know. That but that was the that was the air that we breathed in my family. She got married at 30 or at 50? She got married at 50, but at 29, she was unmarried at 29. And this is where all of this messaging, I think where I really started absorbing a lot of that messaging around relationships and marriage being the end all be all, and you've just really got to have a man in your life. So she was 29, unmarried. Of course, all the women in the family were very concerned about this. So aunts, moms, and and this is about grandmothers, everyone. And I had an aunt come to me and say, okay, here's the plan. So I was 21 at the time. <laughs> and she laid out the plan for me was to make sure I was engaged within a year since I was in college and there were all these single men. And she sat me down and laid out this plan for me to get married, which eventually led to me choosing (laughs) a husband at an age I was unprepared to choose a husband for, which led to my divorce 17 years later and a lot of other stories along the way. Wow. I'd say like you're 21 times a ticking. (laughs) (laughs) But also that whole thing of like, oh, there's all the men at college, like, right. There's this constant scarcity narrative that, I mean, Shade and I could do a totally different podcast about this and she works on dating, but there's this like constant scarcity narrative of like, there aren't enough men. You have yeah. to grab one when you're around them. It's like being at the grocery store. Even if you don't need or want bread, there might not be bread at the next place. You just better get one. Cause like, we have to have a loaf of bread at all times. A hundred percent, hundred percent. I love that your sister got married at 50. She was like on my own time. Thank you. I will wait till it's worth it. <laughs> What about you, Candace? Yeah. So I watched my mom have a really challenging relationship with her mother and they didn't like each other basically. And I always thought that was so strange. And my mom and I were super close, which is the opposite of that. And my mom didn't teach me hardly anything about rules. She was like, whatever. I think because her mom was so strict. And so I was always kind of like, I don't see what, why is it so hard to like have a good mother-daughter relationship? And then I have two daughters now and I'm like, oh, that's why that's hard. And so I wanted to be part of this conversation because I have the lens of both. I have, I am a daughter and I am also a mother and I feel the pressures from both sides. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Karen? So I came to this work through my own difficult relationship with my mom, like Candace, my mom and her mom did not get along. And that was something that was very present in my life. And like Candace, also, I was close to my mom, especially when I was in my early 20s and mid 20s, actually, and didn't realize it at the time, because my mom and my parents got divorced when I was very young as well. And then my mom remarried when I was five. She divorced my stepfather when I was in college. And when I got out of college and came home, I lived with my mom and then started this sort of very weird, unhealthy relationship where it was like, we were like these two single women going out to clubs and whatnot. There were no boundaries. There was talk, you know, my mom, I think was depressed. Again, in hindsight, when I, you know, when I think back at that time, I was just, I was very sort of unformed. My mom was 
like the person who told me what to do. Mm -hmm. And as I got a little bit older and started to sort of want to separate myself from her, the angrier and meaner (laughs) she seemed to become. And so it was in at the end of 2010 that I, and this was before I knew anything about coaching. Well, I think I knew about coaching, but wasn't really involved in it. But I, I estranged myself from my mom at the end of 2010 and then got into coaching. And it was in coaching, especially my master coach certification, when a lot of my mother's stuff sort of came to the surface and the coaching I got on, on it as a result of being in that program at the time was just, it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I had thought that I was going to go into coaching around body image, because that is also a huge part of mother-daughter relationships. But the results that I got, the aha moments that I had, the progress that I made in regards to the relationship I had with my mom, just was sort of like, okay, this is, I have to do this work with other women. So Yeah, so beautiful. We have so many of us, I think, are coaching on the thing that transformed our lives the most, right? Yeah. I mean, I think certainly for me, I feel like the more that I came to understand thought work and that our thinking is learned and inherited, it just like gave me a different perspective on both my parents and what, right, the messages I had gotten because I was just like, right, they didn't make these up. They weren't the first humans on earth. Like they didn't make up the messages they were giving me. Like they got them from their parents, right? And they... One one other piece I want to say on that is that what I started to see is I call it the micro and the macro. There's one woman and her mother, right, struggling. And then the more I started to do this work and research and talking to women and programs like yours to see that this doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It's not difficult mother-daughter relationships don't aren't just like, oh, it's because the mother's a jerk or whatever, right? right. It happens in the context of patriarchy and misogyny and white supremacy, racism, like all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's, I'd love to hear from each of you. Let's talk about that a bit because one of the things we wanted to really talk about in this episode is the ways in which mothers pass on those belief systems to their children, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes consciously, like sometimes embracing those values, like, like Shade's story. Nobody was like, we're subtly suggesting that marriage is important. They were like, let's go. You're 21. We got to like <laughs> move this produce while it's fresh, right? Like, so sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, but I would just love to hear from each of you kind of your thoughts on how you see that come up maybe in the niche that you work on or your personal experience, however you'd like to speak to it, but why and how that happens. Yeah, I have two sides to it. One is me as a mother. And I think I knew something wasn't quite right as I raised my daughter because there were these moments that were just like a little bit uncomfortable and I wouldn't know what to do. So I was, prior to my divorce, I was not questioning my thoughts. So I hadn't done any coaching, wasn't questioning my thoughts, mostly unconscious about my socialization, but also wanting something different from my daughter than I had experienced. And I remember there would be, there would be moments, I remember little moments where she would be dressed a little disheveled. And I would be like, catch myself wanting to say something like, because mm. I remembered you couldn't dress that way. Like men didn't like that. Boys didn't like that. You were supposed to be all dressed up and looking good. But then I also just knew that there was something wrong about <laughs> telling her, hey, you should change what, because she wasn't 
dressed badly. She was just dressed like my son would dress. Mm-hmm. And so I remember some of those thoughts and some of those moments or the fact that I wouldn't let her stay out as late as her brother, which she complained vociferously about. And I would be like, I just can't. I don't, I can't let you go out. I'm sorry. She's like, but he can go out. I'm like, I know, but you can't because of course I was trying to protect her. So a lot of the messages that I think mothers are trying to pass on comes from like, oh, I need to protect my daughter mm-hmm. or make sure she's okay. But a lot of that is also just because of what they're not questioning why their daughter needs to be protected in that moment or why their daughter wouldn't be okay in wearing what she's wearing or doing what she's doing. And this is all, like you said, it's all, you know, messages that have been passed down. And we've all just, as mothers, just taking it all in and are just like trying to make sure our daughters are okay. So that's kind of like me as a mother, like trying to like just make sure my daughter was okay. And it showed up in all of those ways. Yeah. Can we wait pause on that before we go to the next thing? Because I think this is so important. Like part of that context, right, is for that thousands of years, women, even if they were lucky enough to be born, like not enslaved and with some money and with some privilege, still like didn't have legal rights, couldn't vote, couldn't have their own bank account, right? So like a lot of the messages that mothers pass down to daughters of like, you need to get a man, you need to look good, you need to seem, you know, like that was protecting them, right? That that was like trying to set them up for success, which was, we got to get you married to somebody. And like, the better you can present, that is your safety. Otherwise, what are your options? Like, there wasn't a space in society to be a single woman, right? You were like, unless you happen to inherit a bunch of wealth that you had no male relatives to claim, like, just a vanishingly small proportion of the population. So it was like, join a cop, become a nun, or get married, like these are, or be a spinster who lives with your parents forever, taking care of them. Maybe if you happen to have enough money to do that, that's centuries of background. We just like when for those listening who are like, why you know my mother fucked me up about my body image, about my appearance, and all of this. It's like there's so many thousands of years of that being literally. That's your asset that we have to help you make your way in life, and so of course it can be coming from that place of trying to protect and help you, even though now that is not so helpful. Yeah. Well, and with my mother and aunts, they actually adjusted the message a little bit. They were like, okay, but you need to make, you need to have an education and make your own money mm-hmm. so that if you pick the wrong man, you can take <laughs> You still definitely need one, but you also need an escape plan in case you pick the wrong one. This is such like a fascinating message. Like, but then why do I need one? And also we agree I might get the wrong one, but I definitely still need to get one, but it might be wrong. Like if that's such a perfect moment in time of like, cultural mores and law shifting and like culture is like, ah, I don't know. I think we still need a man, but also you should have money, but also like just the dissonance of like that messaging is so fascinating. And how it shows up with my clients, I'll just say a little bit is it's the message never good enough. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you are divorced. So you obviously got it all wrong. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and are obviously not good enough to achieve this thing that you're supposed to have achieved and done right. And a lot of messaging is from moms. I mean, a lot of my coaching is helping my clients see that, hey, your mom telling you you're too picky <laughs> is not helpful in this mm-hmm. situation. So I hear their moms passing on messages like you're too picky, boys don't like, or men don't like, or you need to change, you need to tone down. I have one client who is unmarried and was assaulted when she was a teenager and her mom didn't blame her for the assault because it you know, definitely wasn't her fault. It's never your fault if you're assaulted, 
but always used it as this is the reason why you were picked, why you were targeted because you didn't do X, Y, Z. And then that messaging of mm-hmm. you're not good enough. You didn't do it right. It's just, it comes from so many different ways and so many different statements that imply that the woman isn't good enough to meet a man or isn't good, good enough because she doesn't have a man or wasn't good enough. And that's why she's divorced. My God. I just like had this moment of like, how many conversations have women had about what men like and how many conversations do men have about what women like? Like just, you just do not hear a lot of fathers and sons being like, son, women don't like it when you don't do your dishes or whatever it is. When you don't know where the clitoris is or when you don't, you know, like when you don't think they're your equal. Like, I mean, just like, that's such a common phrase. Like men don't like this, men don't like that. Like women are heterosexual women, but also anybody socialized in a heteronormative society is like, constantly running it through that filter and like meanwhile men are just wandering around doing their own thing like really unconcerned about what women like or don't like yeah it speaks to unconditional acceptance and i think that's the unconscious messaging whether like me you were a mother who tried her best but didn't quite succeed or daughter unconditional acceptance is what women don't get when Mm -hmm. we see these messages 100 percent. what about you candace Yeah. So as you're speaking about cultural mores shifting and the dissonance, I was like, this is another example of that is where exactly does safety come from? And is it a short-term safety or a long-term safety? Because I have a daughter in elementary school and kids are mean in elementary school. If you don't look a certain way or have a certain body type or say the right things, or if you play sport that a boy is supposed to play, like those Mm -hmm. kinds of conversations are still happening on the playground. And so I find myself being like, Okay, like I understand consciously she can create safety for herself in her own brain, but like she's not fully developed enough to do that. So maybe I should try and control her seeds a little bit more. And so I think what I've noticed is that I choose to believe that most moms are trying to protect and create safety, but we're just not sure exactly where it comes from. And so like, when can we stop controlling the seas? And trust her to create her own safety. And is she going to be reliable about it? Because she came home crying when that boy said that. And what's my job here? So there's lots of questions like that, that the dissonance is, makes it easy to relax back into what I was taught as a kid. Like, you're supposed to look like this, so you're supposed to do this. And so it's challenging to let that go when you see your daughter experiencing pain. That's so important also, because obviously there are also situations where mothers are, or parents are trying to protect their daughters or their sons or whoever their children from sexual assault or from totally. brutality or from, right. There's like all these, you know, mm-hmm. depending on your background and your kind of identity groups or whether you're a member of a marginalized community, like there may be literal physics. It's not just emotional safety. It's like, what are the, totally. physical, right. I mean, mm-hmm. the parents of people of color and especially black people in America, especially black men in America have to like, there's a lot of socialization that's being done literally to try to protect your life. Right. And at the same time, it's like, emphasizing the same it's like we're all we're constrained by okay i'm trying to teach you how to like have more have emotional and physical freedom in a system where you may not be free and how do i like teach you about that without also crushing your freedom at the same time right like what that Mm -hmm. how much do i want my own kid to be the the guinea pig that goes in and like stands for something else versus Mm -hmm. versus how much do i just want to teach him to go with the flow even if it might stifle them in a different way Hmm. it's a challenging question what about you karen what are your thoughts on this ways you see in your work or your personal life of kind of like mothers passing down patriarchal conditioning or white supremacy or whatever these systems are 
Definitely in my family, there was a huge emphasis on weight and looks. And what came up a lot between my mother's mother and her, and then my mother and me, and even my grandmother, was a lot of shaming. Mm -hmm. And shaming and fear, right? I think at one time, shame and fear were used as they were like perfectly valid parenting tools. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what I would of, say they still are for sure. Yeah. I mean, we haven't like fully escaped that. I mean, I remember when I was in my, maybe in college or in my early 20s, my grandmother paying me to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And then seeing my mom being angry at my grandmother for doing these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, my mother shaming me as well over mm-hmm. my body. And because my body was not thin enough for them. But the other aspect that I see is that there, and this was my my experience, was that I think a lot of young adult daughters will choose to say, you know what, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to have this body. I'm going to wear these kinds of clothes, wear my hair this way. Maybe I'm going to be gay, you know, or maybe I am gay. I mean, it's not a choice, but like, you know, they're, they're going to follow the, their desires mm-hmm. and the mother shame them in order to protect them in this is sort of like misguided, like I need right. to shame them so that they won't do these things, which could ultimately hurt them, right? Or they might be hurt because of these things. But then when the daughter goes ahead and does them anyway, and maybe is living a freer, happier life, the mother is then jealous, you know, and this was my experience, right? That, you know, if I couldn't have that, and if I couldn't live in that way, then you can't either, or you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And it sets up this, that's, that was my experience. It set up this r- really weird dynamic between me and my mom. And so there was like no, no, no boundaries. And, and for a long time, I was so needing my mom's approval, right? Well into my forties, even. You know, so it was, it was this really weird push pull thing that happened. I mean, one of the things I notice as I've started to spend time with my partner and his children and, you know, be sort of participating in his parenting is like, you know, I'm obviously somebody who would, is pretty sure I'm not spreading explicitly sexist messaging to the children, but there's all of these implicit things, right. That you don't even necessarily consciously catch yourself on of like, am I implicitly teaching my daughter or somebody else's daughter, like to, you know, if one child is having a tantrum and you are asking the other child to like accommodate that, are you like teaching them to accommodate, you know, that like other people's feelings are more important than theirs? Or are you teaching them that it's their job to manage other people? And obviously women get socialized with that much more than men do. And like, but so much of it, it feels like so much of that socialization that they're receiving is happening, not just from you, right? So it's like, you can't control all of those inputs. And then It happens so early, like those, whatever inputs they get from the world on the basis of their perceived gender by the world, right, is like already shaping the dynamic, the person, the way that they show up, what they think is expected of them, what they expect. And so I feel like, like the image I have is like, there's some big knot inside something opaque and I can put one hand in a hole and try to like untangle the knot, but I like don't even know what else is happening in there. And I'm just hoping that I don't accidentally also like cut some other string that was necessary while I'm trying to untangle this knot and then not even notice. Probably I won't till 20 years later. So I do want to ask you guys, I want to talk about a little bit about 
the way you, somebody, whoever wrote the question, I thought was interesting because they said, how can we keep conversations about this topic from developing into mother blaming? And is that effort important? Which I definitely want to talk about because as a feminist podcast, right? Also not lost on me that we're here like talking about moms, right? And that mothers are always blamed for like their child's problems that we have like this long history of, you know, if you read the history of like 20th century psychology, it's just like, here are 75 ways that mothers have ruined their children. What are fathers? We've never heard of them and they are irrelevant other than I guess there can also be, there's the Odysseus complex. I guess we'll have an Electra one too, or whatever, just like tagged on the end in a way that doesn't even make sense. So like, how can we have this conversation without it being like, and mothers are to blame for everything and see. Well, that's definitely a thought that has been passed down. So <laughs> just so you know, <laughs> where moms are constantly triggered by the outcomes or how we see what the outcome is going to be. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I remember my son was six-year-old one day and he told me a lie and my brain just jumped to prison. Like that was the problem <laughs> I was trying to solve in that moment when my six-year-old, which is a completely natural developmental milestone when your child right. tells you a lie. And so that's for when we're unconscious, unsocialized by the patriarchy and unquestioning of our thoughts, this is what's happening inside of us. It's exactly what Karen was describing is the moms are, we're triggered. We're just like constantly like walking around in this like state of like, oh my God, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and this is going to happen. And Mm. we're thinking thoughts like, I'm not okay. She's not going to be okay. My child isn't going to be okay. And if they're not okay, we might be burned at the stake together. (laughs) This is, Mm. this is sort of the loop that's happening within moms. And I think understanding that and having compassion for that can really help with just taking the blame out of it. Mm -hmm. Like mom is just acting out of everything she's been taught, everything she's lived. And I'm not a fan of the phrase, they did their best with what they could, because I don't know, just (laughs) something about that whole whole other conversation. Yeah, I have another episode about that. (laughs) It's understanding what's actually happening. What's happening is mom is having a whole lot of thoughts have been embedded in her and she's been emotionally like re-traumatized based on memories she's flashing back to in her childhood. I remember, I know things like I've had to slow myself down as a mom to say, okay, the fact that your child is asking for something that you think is ridiculous is not necessarily bad. It might mean that you're a good mom. Oh my God. That space. was a problem. <laughs> I was, I've, <laughs> my partner's kids told me the other day that for his birthday, he wanted a horse and a pig to live in my backyard. So if I was judging like also like the other places comes up there's like us judging other people but then also I think it's impossible for that socialization to not impact what we expect from our own mothers like what we think our mothers are supposed to provide and the standard we have for them versus like the standard that we potentially have for our fathers 100 percent I remember reading this in a blog somewhere a few years ago, and I don't even remember what the the blog was about, but the woman who was writing the blog said that women were never meant to be raising children in the isolation that they do. Right. And so, right, women, and I don't know how for how long, but it's probably been centuries that, you know, one man, one woman nuclear family, right, has come in to be the norm, right? Women are isolated. They're ex- especially right when they have a, had a baby. I'm, I've never had a baby, so I don't know that experience, but everything I hear, right, <laughs> it's not easy. And you're, yet you're expected to be this perfect mother who takes care of every need and all by yourself, right? While your husband goes to work, 
right? And, and like it's like that kids on the weekends, quote unquote, his own right. Age. Yeah. But that when I when I read that, it really hit home about just how behind the eight ball is that a a bad comment? I don't even know if it's a bad thing. Behind anyway. the ball, I've heard. I think eight ball is like a drug reference. I don't know if you're behind the eight ball. <laughs> I mean, you're just behind the ball, or you could like well, behind, you know how know. how the way it's set up makes it harder. Mm-hmm for women to be mothers in the way that I think that if, you know, in a more communal or village aspect, right, that there's the aunties and the friends and the, you know, all of that, that is naturally part of the process of raising children. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the sort of repair work that can be done, whether that's like, the work you do to repair a relationship with a parent or mother who's in your life or the work you do on your own. If you are, you know, I'd love to hear from each of you, like whether from your niche or your personal experiences, but right. The whole point is we're not just going to sit around and be like, well, my mom was terrible. And here's a podcast about why, but like, how do we bring our own responsibility? Right. Like whether you have a mom or two moms or three moms or no moms or whoever your parents are, like you are getting a lot of messages, some of which you maybe want to keep, some of which you don't, right? It's like your responsibility as an adult to decide like which of these belief systems am I going to keep? What am I going to pass down? What am I going to like put on the curb for maybe somebody else to pick up? Because I don't want them anymore. So I kind of love to hear from each of you. And Candice, do you have anything you want to start? Yeah, I was just going to start. If that's yeah, okay. yeah. So I went through pop psychology for a long time because I did my bachelor's and my master's in psychology. And so I very much was indoctrinated in the, your mom did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong thing. So I think I was kind of reactive to that and being like, no, I understand that my mom is this and this and this, and I understand all of that, which led me to disavow my own experience because I'm so understanding. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think what I've learned when I became a mother was like, oh, I have to understand her experience, because it's true, she didn't do that out of spider meanness. The way that she taught me things wasn't out of that. I understand the pressure she was under, but I also understand the impact that it had on me. And I can be disappointed or hurt or any of those things without disliking her, mm-hmm. which sounds a lot easier to say than it is to live, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because it it requires a lot of like honesty and pain. And sometimes the other part of that partnership does not really, my mom's not super interested in hearing about the pain (laughs) that I am experiencing because she, for whatever reason, doesn't allow herself space to be like, she just makes it that she's wrong. Right. So Mm -hmm. it's either I'm wrong or she's wrong. And maybe neither one of the partners have to be wrong. Just like Mm -hmm. this was the way that you decided to handle the very real pressures that existed in your life because of what you were socialized to believe. And this is how it impacted me. And here's what I want to do with that knowledge instead of just blame you. That makes sense. It's like cause and effect. It's like if the tree falls on your house, then like there's damage to the house. Right. That's not the same thing as being like that tree is out to get me, didn't love me, doesn't care about yes. me. Should have been a perfect tree. Right. Like there's that. But I, of course, people don't. I mean, people won't always be able to hear it that way. Because if you haven't done the work to liberate yourself from that, I call that like the shame blame. Seesaw, yes, totally. Right? It's like. Somebody's got to be wrong here. So it's me or it's you. So many. And we're invited to identify ourselves as wrong. You know, yeah. if you've just done that better for your daughter, if you hadn't have taught her this. And I have that with my eight-year-old. Like sometimes my husband will say it to me, like, he's not trying to be a jerk, but he's like, I think it's because you did this. It's never because of what he did. Of course, <laughs> it's something that I did or like people in your church will do that or people in your neighborhood or the teachers will say, if you just this, 
So we get invited to it and we have to just pass all those invitations back. Well, also it's like, there's this myth that you could possibly do it right. 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 Like, as opposed to like any ecosystem has like advantages and disadvantages. If you Mm -hmm. live in this place, it's warm all the time, but there's a lot of mosquitoes. If you live in this place, it's cold, but you know, you don't have mosquitoes, but now it's cold all the time. Like, you know, I see that in, I mean, my friend's parenting, my partner's parenting, how I was parented, the quasi parenting that I do. It's like, you're trying to solve for one thing and then there's an undetected consequence, right? So yeah, you're like mm-hmm. trying to instill this value. And then like six years later, you're like, shit, I think I accidentally <laughs> instilled it. that one or skipped it, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But but this idea that like, if we somehow just got it, like there's no socialization that is a perfect system that everybody would agree on, right? And we can't, I was just talking in a podcast interview about how the goal of this work isn't to like completely deprogram yourself. Like socialization is everything. It's like, mm-hmm. I- put on clothes today and like what a house is and whether like which food is safe to eat is also socialization. Like we're not, you're not trying to undo it all. Right. And there's such a perfectionist dialogue around this. That's like somehow the other thing I see parents get so caught up in and both in their own parenting and then in blaming their parents is the fallacy, like the delusion that if it was done differently to me, or if I can do this differently, then my child will never feel upset. And I will want to, Mm -hmm. right. So it's like, if only my parents have been different, I wouldn't have to have this human experience of life where sometimes I feel bad. Or if only I can like make all the right decisions for my child, they won't have to have the human experience of life where they sometimes feel bad, right? And like that delusion of control makes people crazy and makes them feel powerless. No matter how well your parents parented you, 50-50, still going to feel shitty sometimes, right? And no matter how well you parent your child. And Still like about expanding changes. capacity to feel. Yeah. Yeah. And you could do like, even if you could do the perfect job, then the, the world would be like, guess what? We've now invented internet mm-hmm. porn. Everything is different. And that socialization doesn't work anymore. Like whatever new things would keep happening. And then whatever you taught your kid would be like outdated or not true anymore or whatever else. What about you, Shade? Do you have anything you want to add on the sort of repair front or how to move forward? Yeah, I think two things. One is to stop looking for answers outside of yourself, which I think mm-hmm. that compounded the problem for me where, okay, mom doesn't have the answer. So aunt has the answers. Aunt doesn't have the answers. The church has the answers, which mm-hmm. I found myself like at 33 seeking out a mentor at church, an older woman. There's a part in my spiritual background where it's like, Hey, the younger woman seeks out an older woman who will help yeah. her. And <laughs> It was fine when she was teaching me to bake pies and all the things. But then the moment I mentioned that, hey, my husband is an actual jerk and this might be an abusive relationship, she never spoke to me again. So that's how how that went. But I spent a lot of time looking for answers outside of myself. The answers are inside and just Mm -hmm. being willing to question my own, not question my experience, but sit with my own experience Mm -hmm. and draw answers from like, this is actually what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. This is what is happening to my body or in my life and being with that and then making decisions for that. It was a huge part of my healing, my ability to set boundaries for myself with my daughter, mm-hmm. my ability to set boundaries with my mother while having compassion, which is still an ongoing journey. And I think the other piece, which you know, I hope maybe Karen will talk a little bit about is your nervous system might be completely jacked up by what you've experienced from these messages. I I worked with Karen in a coaching container to deal with a lot of the triggers is the word I'm going to throw out. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of definitions of that, but just an easy model for what was going on with my nervous system around my family and my mother and my divorce. 
And I think sometimes there's work that needs to be done there to handle if you're carrying around a lot of shame that just comes up all the time. You might need to work with someone, a therapist or coach or someone who can help you kind of calm that down so that you can be with your experience in a way that's safe. Yeah, I think it's so important. Like my experience in my family was that my relationship got so much better with them when I took responsibility for my own emotional state, because otherwise what I was basically doing was like, anytime I had a bad feeling, it was like, well, let me find the corresponding fucked up thing my parents did that explains why now in 2013, I'm having a negative emotion. Like, what's the thing they did in 1983 that caused this, right? Like, and so that was like so disempowering. And then I was so overly sensitized to them and like that whole thing, right? And it was such great news to be like, oh, wait, I can decide how to feel. Still gonna be 50 50. But like, I think that's like the reason people get so hooked into this and like cannot stop is that you feel so powerless if you believe that like whatever your parents did controls how you can ever feel again. You feel so powerless. Then the only way you can try to find power is like by fixating on it and ruminating about it as if you could change it by thinking about it or being angry about it, which doesn't work at all. What do you got, Karen? It's your specialty. (laughs) 30 seconds on how to repair the mother-daughter relationship. (laughs) Well, everything that everyone has said so far, yes, to all of it. And that taking responsibility piece is so, so important. And I think I know for a while I, you know, struggled with what does that mean? Does that mean that it is my fault? Right. And that's that shame, blame, you know, fault. It's yours. It's mine. Like, whose is it kind of thing? And so I like to say things like, let's take fault out of the equation. Let's take, you know, blame off the table. And right. In some cases, you know, our mothers were abusive. I'll use that term. In my case, there was violence and addiction and a number of things. And what I've come to is that I think a lot of women are hoping and wanting for the person who caused the problem or who was the abusive one. They need to be responsible for your healing. Mm -hmm. And what really shifted it for me was why am I expecting this person? who hurt me, right, to change, and now all of a sudden be able to fix me, if you will. That is so important in any relationship. People just breakups too. Like, that person is not the source of your healing. That exactly. That doesn't make any sense. We're like, well, you gave me the poison, so you also have the antidote? Like, no. No. They don't have it. Right. So, you know, it's like, you may not be responsible for what happened to you as a child, but it is your responsibility now. And thank God. Right. right? Like, thank God that you have the, you know, there's tools, there's, right, if you're listening to this, right, you now know, wait, it doesn't have to be that way, I can take responsibility. And that is such a powerful place to start. And so one of the things that I think is really important, as Shade said, is the nervous system piece. Again, there's all kinds of information out there, all kinds of people who are doing this kind of work. One of the things that I like to do, I call it self-concept work. I know a number of coaches who do self-concept work. And the way that I do it is really about looking at the values, the traits, the qualities that are important to you and being able to associate a felt sense, a feeling state in your body associated with these values or traits, and then coming up with thoughts that support you in feeling that way so that it becomes this sort of like 
it is thought work on, on a certain level, right? Because it has you then showing up the way you want to show up in the relationship. Or if you are estranged, right, which that is a perfectly good choice for some people, but to base your choices from this self-concept that is not wounded necessarily or victimized. And I know that's a tricky word to use, right? So it is cultivating this self-concept and it's from that self-concept that really healthy boundaries can be had and established. So, yeah, I think that's so important because like you said, there's nothing wrong with being estranged if that's what you want to choose, or if it's that choice being made by somebody else and you can't control it, you have to learn to live with it. But I also feel like there's a, I know there's like a cultural component to it too. Like as a Jewish person, I'm always like, what is being estranged from your family? Like if you, like if you stop speaking to your Jewish family, they will generally show up on your doorstep. Like whether that is a good thing or a bad thing, just, this is not like for a lot of immigrant communities, like this is just not really what, of course, anybody can make any concept available to them that they want. But like, there's a big difference I see in my experience across like certain religious or immigrant communities to yeah. sort of more generic U.S. been here for a while. Wasp. <laughs> white person, not. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like how involved family is in your life, what's considered like the standard for that, like how acceptable it is, like what kind of involvement you need to have with your parents. So I just think it's so, you know, to me, estrangement was like, and also I'm not for any of my family listening, I'm not suggesting that I ever considered becoming estranged from you or that anybody <laughs> did anything that would merit that. I just am pointing out that like, I think, you know, even I find that so much of the pop psychology talk around like boundaries and cutting people out of your life is I'm just like, this is not, first of all, this is not helpful and absolutist. Second of all, for some people that's not like plausible or possible or desirable. And there are other alternatives, right? Like not every culture supports the sort of vision of adulthood in which you are supposed to be like completely independent from your family. And it's like no big deal if you never speak to your parents again. Like, yeah, go you ahead. know, it's what's kind of interesting. And I it's not that I forgot, but I it did it just sort of popped into my mind again, the fact that my mom was estranged from both of her parents, her parents got divorced in 1981, I think. And so my mom was what 40 something, I don't know how old she was at the time. But and she eventually was estranged from both of them and didn't go to either of their funerals, any of that. And it just, again, it dawned on me like, oh, well, that was what the model was. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yes. I think it's so like the point is you always get, to, you get to choose. I mean, you always get to choose your reaction. You have a, you could have a parent who's decided to estrange themselves from you and you can't control that. Yeah. Right? But, like you get to decide how you're going to feel about that. My mom has estranged herself from me at times. And, you know, my thought that I practice very consciously is let me know when you change your mind. And that's also a beautiful, like things can change, right? Things can ebb and flow. It's not where your relationship is at right now with whoever this is in your life that you're kind of thinking about listening to this episode isn't necessarily where it's going to be forever, right? It's like, how can you just show up? There's a great quote from somebody like Ogden Nash or somebody like that, that goes, the state of mind in which you make your final decision rarely lasts. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that can maybe adds a little nuance to the whole boundaries and estrangement thing is that doing what's right for you, like going back to the answers are inside, is it's not boundaries or creating safety or teasing out these relationships or doing what is right for you according to your values doesn't always feel good. 
Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we reach for these answers, like, okay, if I cut right. her out of my life, then I'll I'm feel going better to- if I set this boundary. <laughs> I'll feel better if I cut out this thing I'm reacting to. Yeah. Yeah. And as someone who I feel like I'm doing this work amazingly, both with my mother and my daughter, it still feels terrible 50% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But there's this other 50% that's amazing that I can now experience as part of that journey. So, you know, boundaries don't always feel good. It's really about sitting and understanding what am I trying to do? What's my intention? Where am I trying to get to? What's right for me according like to my values? As opposed to feeling shitty all the time, you get to feel amazing half the time and terrible yes. half the time. As exactly. opposed to feeling mediocrely bad all the time. All right, my friends, thank you for coming on. Will you each please tell people where they can find you? If they want to learn more about your specific areas of expertise. I'll go first. No, um, nobody wants any clients ever. You just want to sit silently <laughs> on my podcast. Shade. Where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm Shade Curry. Shade is spelled S-A-D-E. Curry, C-U-R-Y, like the food. You can find me at shadecurry.com or on my podcast, which is my favorite place to hang out. It's just the Dating After Divorce podcast or just search for Shade Curry on your favorite podcast platform. So good. What about you, Candice? Yeah, I'm Candice Toon. You can find me at CandiceToon.com. It's Candice with an I. And And Toon has an E at the end. Correct. Yep. And my website is KCLAnderson.com. And you can also find my podcast, which is the Dear Adult Daughter podcast on all the platforms. All the podcast places. All right. Thank you for coming on, my friends. Everybody go call their mom and assure them that the podcast is... (laughs) about them. Thanks, Cara. Sounds good. Thanks for having us. If you really want to dive into what I teach on goal setting, like what's a perfectionist fantasy, what's a minimum baseline goal, how to know what kind of goal and when to set the goal, all of that. I have several topics that dive into this and we have set up a totally free way to get all of those episodes just sent to you all at once. So you don't have to go like hunting and pecking through the Facebook, I'm sorry, through the podcast feed. So just text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. That's plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. You'll get prompted for a code word. The code word is just resolutions, plural, or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash resolutions. Again, that's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash resolutions. And you just give us your email and we will send you a list with links to all of the episodes in which I have talked about goal setting, resolutions especially, and that will be a real deep dive for you on how to set resolutions for 2023 that you actually will do (laughs) and how to think about goal setting in general so that you can be consistently setting and achieving goals throughout your life rather than setting 10 goals and doing none of them every year as your New Year's ritual. Let's not do that this year, my, my chickens. All right. Text your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four code word resolutions or unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash resolutions. Again, totally free. Just give us your email and we will send you all those links. Have a beautiful end to 2022, my chickens. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.